0: The sermon for this afternoon was prepared by the Reverend Wes Bradenhoff, Minister of the Free Reformed Church of Tasmania, Australia. After the sermon, we'll sing in response from hymn 65, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there was once a very smart con man who got the idea to trick some Christians He came to a town where they lived and pretended to be one of them. In fact, he was so good at pretending to be a Christian that this group decided that he had to become their pastor. Things were a little disorganized among these Christians. He gave them the impression that he really knew the Bible and he could speak quite well. He didn't believe a word of it, but that didn't matter. It didn't matter to him because, as their new pastor, he was being supported by them and quite generously. The charade was going quite well for the con man until the local government decided to crack down on the church. The imposter pastor was arrested and thrown in prison. Not because he was an imposter, but because the government thought he was a genuine Christian pastor. Being in prison in this time and place was not like being in prison today. You were on your own. You didn't get fed unless someone brought you food. The Christians rallied around their pastor and did exactly that. They smothered him with love and attention. He was soon released, and then he disappeared, moving on to his next con— that's a true story, and it took place soon after the time of the Apostles. The common's name was Peregrinus, and we know his story because it was recorded by pagan writer Lucian of Samosata. What impressed Lucian in his story was the way that Christians took care of each other. Even though he wasn't a Christian, Lucian couldn't help but notice their love for one another, He wrote that according to their religion, when they believe in Christ, they become one another's brothers and sisters. They become family. Peregrinus and his his biographer Lucian of Samosota were witnessing the communion of saints in action. It was an impressive sight even for these pagans. They'd never seen anything like it. Like the weather, we talk about the Communion of Saints all the time. But what exactly is the Communion of Saints? How do we define it? Twice in question and answer 55, we find the word members. We are members of Christ. And then we also find that there are other members. That's what we call organic language, or to put it another way, body language. With the word member, we're calling up the image of a body. In Scripture, we find the expression body of Christ, and it's used in connection with the church. The church is the body of Christ, and so the believers within the church are members or parts of that body. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the most important passages about that. In verse 27, Paul says, Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We need to note who Paul is writing to here. It is the church of Corinth. He says to that particular local church, you are the body of Christ. That expression can have a broader usage. But in most places in the New Testament, the body of Christ is referring to the local church and its members. It is primarily this body of Christ in the local church where we experience the communion of saints. Communion refers to relationship. The saints are simply God's people. Those people are united to Christ by faith as members of his body. They share in who he is. They have a relationship with him. They are also united to one another as members of Christ's body. So, if we are to define the communion of saints, we could say that it is a union with Christ and with other believers that is to be found within the church. This afternoon, we will learn what it means to believe and to experience the communion of saints in this local church we will learn about how it involves both blessings and duties. In the catechism, we confess that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Those treasures and gifts fall into two general categories. In the first, we find what we call the general benefits of Christ. Those are the benefits given to each and every believer. We find them sprinkled generously throughout the whole Bible. This is the good news of the gospel. For instance, we read in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, And because of him, that's God, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful, glad tidings. And we find those not only in the New Testament, but already in the Old. Take that passage that we read from Psalm 46. In verse 4, we read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. In the context of the Old Testament, that's clearly a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem contained the temple, which was God's dwelling place. It was often referred to as the city of God as well. But that leaves us with a question, because... Anyone who's ever looked at a map knows that there is no river flowing through Jerusalem. It's one of those rare cities not located on any substantial body of water. So why does this psalm speak of a river? It is true that there was and is no river of water flowing through Jerusalem. However, in the days of this psalm, there was a river of blood. When the sacrifices were offered in the temple, there was a lot of blood. Sources outside of the Bible tell us how a plumbing system was installed in the temple to deal with all this blood. Spring water was diverted into the temple. The water came in at the top and ran over the floor, which was sloped and would then wash away the blood at the bottom into a drainage system. Once outside the temple, this blood would come out into the open air. So there was literally a creek of blood flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. This is the river whose streams make glad the city of God. And why? Because the blood brought the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God it didn't do that by itself but because of who it pointed forward to because it pointed to jesus christ the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world in this way the river whose streams make glad the city of god speaks of the general benefits of christ those general benefits make god's people glad in the old testament how much more shouldn't we be glad today knowing the reality of what Christ has done. The city of God, the dwelling place of the Most High today, is his church. The church today is where God's mighty river of benefits flows. That's why we say with the Belgic Confession in Article 28 that there's no salvation outside the church. This is where we normally share in all the treasures and gifts of Christ beginning with the general benefits that all believers share equally. Let us never forget or take it for granted that when we believe in Christ, we are united to him. And because we are united to him, we receive every single promise that is given in connection with him. That's why the Catechism speaks of treasures. When you receive a treasure... That means you're rich, and the gospel has made us so rich, far richer than we can grasp or imagine with Christ our Savior. And as if general benefits were not enough, we are also recipients of special benefits and gifts. These gifts are the special abilities to express, celebrate, and display Christ. These gifts are the special abilities to communicate Christ in a way that builds up the faith of your fellow believers. These gifts are also special abilities God uses to enlarge the church. There are several New Testament passages which speak directly about these special gifts. Sometimes what we call spiritual gifts because they come to us through the Holy Spirit. Romans 12 is just one such passage. When we come to Romans 12, the first thing we need to do is remember the context. The structure of Romans is the same as that of the Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, grace, gratitude, or you could also say sin, salvation, service. The authors of the Catechism deliberately followed the pattern of Paul in Romans and elsewhere. Chapter 12 of Romans begins the section about thankfulness. We know that that from the first verse. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God's mercy is what the Apostle has been writing about for the last few chapters. Praise is what the Apostle had for his God of mercy at the end of chapter 11. And praise naturally leads to thanksgiving through an appropriate lifestyle. This is the offering of living sacrifices. We often think that Christ did away with sacrifices, and he did, except for one the thank offering is still in place. The thank offering is ourselves. Our whole entire life is to be a thank offering for the mercies of God in Christ. In context of that thank offering, the Apostle Paul writes about gifts found within the body of Christ. He says that there are different sorts of gifts. One of them is prophesying. There is a sense that prophecy is no, lo- no longer functions in the church today. We have a completed Bible. That completed Bible is sufficient for all God wants us to know. Because of the Bible, we no longer need people to give special messages from God. However, there is also a sense in which prophecy remains as a gift in the church. In the Bible... Prophecy is more than just telling the future or passing on a message received directly from God. The first characteristic of prophecy is that it involves communicating the truth about God. In that sense, all of us are called to be prophets. As Christians, we are prophets who, in the words of the Catechism, confess his name. Another gift that Paul mentions is serving. Verse 7, helping others in various ways, especially in the practical and hands-on way. Some in the church have more of a knack for that than others. Then there's teaching. Some of us enjoy teaching and are good at it. That's also a spiritual gift. So is exhorting or encouraging. Verse 8. There are people in the church who know just the right words to say at the right time. Those of us who have been on the receiving end of that know what a gift that is, and we can be thankful for those who have that gift. We can thank God because it comes from the Spirit of God. Then we have contributing to the needs of others. There are those among us who have a gift of seeing needs around them and then not only seeing them, but also having the means at hand to help out. Leadership is another spiritual gift from Christ. There are believers who naturally fall into positions of leadership. People know that they can be trusted to steer things in the right way and get things done. Finally, Paul mentions the showing of mercy. This spiritual gift involves compassion and being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, to know what they're going through, and to respond in an appropriate way. Now, as we go through that list, perhaps our thoughts are going all over the place. Not surprisingly, some of us are reflecting on our own personal inventory of gifts. Which of those gifts do I have? Or maybe you're thinking about others in the church, thinking that we can sure be thankful that so-and-so has that gift. Both are both thoughts are natural. We need to remember that all of us are different. And with our differences in personality and temperament come different gifts from the Holy Spirit. But the important thing to remember is that all believers have gifts, even if they're not the ones mentioned in Romans 12. Romans 12 doesn't give a comprehensive list. But the Spirit gives each and every believer we know from that passage, like Ephesians 4, verse 7, it shouldn't take a lot of effort to know what gifts what his gifts to you are. But if you do have a problem figuring it out, first pray that God will show you. Try out different areas of service. See where your gifts might lie. You can also ask somebody who knows you real well. They should be able to help you to identify your spiritual gifts. When we know what our gifts are, we also have the duty to use them. The Catechism says, says it, and so does the Belgic Confession. That's clear from Romans 12 as well. The Holy Spirit says that if you have a gift for serving, then use it. If you have a gift for teaching, then teach, and so on. Moreover, this too is part and parcel of the Christian life of thankfulness. We could also think of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. In that parable, there was a man who went on a journey and entrusted money to his servants. He did so with the expectation that they would use that money. There were three servants. Two of them did use the money. They put it to work and gained more. But one didn't, and when the master came back, he was angry with that one lazy servant. That servant was thrown into the darkness. Now, that parable speaks about money, but it's equally applicable to everything the Lord entrusts to us, including our spiritual gifts. We have the duty and calling to use and develop what God gives us. In our catechism, we confess that we are duty-bound to use our gifts readily and cheerfully. Those words call to mind 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And what God says about loving a cheerful giver. Now again, those words speak about the giving of money. But as we saw from Romans 12, that kind of giving is also a spiritual gift. All the gifts we have from the Spirit are meant to be used and to be used cheerfully. And what about readily? Well, here we can think about what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4 verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And there too, we can't rationalize it's not one of my gifts. We can't rationalize and say that, well, Peter was just talking about hospitality. So hospitality is not one of my gifts. One of my gifts is teaching. Sure, I do that with grumbling, but that's okay, because the Bible doesn't say anything against that. Sorry, that's a rationalization and a superficial one at that. All spiritual gifts are to be used cheerfully and readily not just the ones where we have a direct command, such as with hospitality. I mentioned 1 Peter 4 verse 9. If we continue into 4 verse 10, we read these words. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. That speaks to the purpose for which we use our gifts. There's a threefold purpose And 1 Peter 4, verse 10, gives the first two reasons. First of all, we are to use our spiritual gifts within the community of saints for the benefit of others. Here we're thinking of fellow individual believers. If we have a gift of encouragement, we think about so-and-so who's having a rough time right now, and we go to them and use our gift for them. We use it for the benefit of that individual. Second of all, we also use our spiritual gifts within the communion of saints for the benefit of others as a whole, as a corporate body. Here we are thinking of the church as a body. If we have a certain spiritual gift, we use it so that the body as a whole will be edified and built up. I think this is where we struggle the most because of our culture with its narcissism and individualism that makes it hard for us to think in these terms. In this and in so many other ways, we are called to be countercultural. We have to think not only in terms of individuals, but also in terms of a corporate organism or body. How can we use our gifts to build up the body and especially? This body of Christ, where God has placed us. Mark Dever writes about a friend of his who always kept the church at arm's length. He would only ever come to church just in time for the sermon and never even became a member of the church. Dever pushed him on it and asked him why. He said, I know what I'm here to do evangelize and disciple. If I linked with all those people, they just slow me down. Deborah thought about it a moment and then responded, Do you think that if you joined arms with all those people, they might slow you down? You might help them speed up. And God might be more concerned about the corporate whole than simply about you. That's a great response. Too many times in the church, People in the church complain about the worship services or Bible studies or whatever and say, I don't get anything out of it. We need a change of perspective here. What if you are called to give something to it? Doesn't Scripture call you to use your gifts for the benefit of the body? So that's the first two aspects of the purpose for which we are to use our gifts The third one has to do with the glory of the head, who is Christ. This is not disconnected from the first two. In fact, all three are linked together in a tight-knit unity. When we use our gifts, and others in the communion of saints see those gifts being used, praise and thanks are given to God the Father and to Christ, the giver of the gifts, and the Holy Spirit who brings those gifts to us. We want to see that happening, don't we? Ephesians 1 says that the church, that as a church, we're about giving more praise and glory to God. So whether we're on the receiving or giving end of the use of the spiritual gifts or whether we're simply observing the use of the spiritual gifts in the church, all of us are to be making much of God, lifting him up showing that we value and esteem him and recognize him as the one from whom all blessings flow. And isn't that our first and highest calling in life? The communion of saints is found and experienced here in this local church. To be sure, it extends beyond the local church. But it's here first. And that's why the Catechism has question and answer 55 in the same Lord's Day as question and answer 54 regarding the church. The same church that we are living members of is the body of Christ where we share in his treasures and gifts and use those gifts for the good of others. There is a saying that charity starts at home. That's not only a good saying, But it's also a biblical principle. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Sure, we want to help others, but charity starts at home. And that principle applies equally to the church. We know that from Galatians 6 verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In the use of our spiritual gifts, our calling is, first of all, to use those gifts here for the benefit of God's people in this place. The communion of saints is a relationship that brings rich blessings. In Christ. We are gifted with treasures of many sorts. It also brings responsibilities and duties. The same Savior who gives the gifts also gives his Spirit to help us in the use of those gifts. Amen.